So there's a few options you have for home practice. And in home practice, one of the things that's really useful is to set yourself an objective, let's say. So you're coming out of here, you know, and you're going, wow, there was a lot to release. I want to do more release. So then you have to decide. So like, let's say you say, okay, I'm going to spend the next month or so really exploring what there is to release. So then um, you look at your life, so to speak, right? And you go, when do I have time for longer sessions? Or do I have time for longer sessions? And if the answer is yes, right, then you could say, okay, well, I'm going to do a few longer sessions where I give myself the time and the space to really go there. And then the rest of the day, the rest of the time I'm flossing, so to speak, right? So what I mean by flossing, of course, is short um, practice that kind of gets the body into the habit of kind of catching up with what's happening. So that could be just 10 minutes, five minutes even. Um, many of you know this because I talk about it. I tend to do a quick nonlinear session under the shower every time I have to wait for my conditioner to soak in. <laughs> because you know, I'm just standing there and that's a good moment to kind of check in with my body. And then, of course, that's not all you do. But flossing is one way to keep give the body a chance to work through things in a less intense way. And then when you say, let's say, for instance, you have twice a week, if you really want to explore where you can do an hour, then what you'll do is you'll make yourself a playlist and you just set, you know, what I do typically is I make a playlist um, that ends with a relaxation song and then I know I'm done because sometimes on Spotify stuff <laughs> continues to play, which has happened to me. <laughs> Where, you know, you're like, wow, this is a long session. And, and, and I don't remember, I don't recognize the music. And it's like you are like way far down in the, in the suggestion thing, right? So I have, I use the same song for relaxation all the time in teaching as well for myself so that I know that that's the end. And then, then I know when that song's over, I'll get up. So, and then you'll just let that happen and you'll let whatever happens, happens. What's optimal if you want to work with release is that you have some time after where you can either take a, uh, you know, a bath, a shower, a cold dip, a swim. The more water, the better. Yeah. If you don't have a cold dip, a swim, or a bath available, what you can do is you can get into the shower and you can kind of point the shower head on your forehead and then just let it run down and you know, kind of imagine even that you know everything gets washed down into the drain and, uh, and then leave it at that. Yeah, You always want to have a formal end to the practice. That's very, very important. Um, because um, when you do that, then you're essentially um, letting the body know it's over as well. So, yeah. It's a good question and a very timely question because in recent years, the research has gone towards what is called epigenetic trauma, right? And um, it used to be that people thought, for instance, that, you know, there's some genetic stuff um, that is like health-wise, let's say, or behavior-wise. Um, but 
uh, it wasn't considered that the information of, let's say, your mother or grandmother was really transmitted, so to speak. But now we know that it actually is, right? And so um, on an epigenetic level, the trauma of our ancestors is um, passed down, not through the genome, but through the epigenome, which is um, a, a series of uh, methyla methylated chains, I think it's called. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking at Mark, who's a world-class scientist, by the way, if you are wondering who's washing your dishes. <laughs> um, so methylated chains, my brain not so good in this heat. And these methylated chains um, turn on and off gene expression. So I'm telling you this only for the reason that there's a lot of research done on this now. And one of the things they found, which I think is no surprise to anyone who's engaged in that inquiry, is that essentially all the things that are done in the shamanic realms actually have an influence on the epigenome. Which is kind of interesting. So things that, are, that have an influence on in the epigenome are... Um, Rhythmic dancing, drumming, smudging, plant medicines, ritual, um, certain kind of healing methods that are done in indi indigenous cultures, the taking of things, that, you know, like all of that stuff actually has an impact on the epigenome, meaning you can change the way gene expression happens through these external things. You can also do things, nowadays we know that, but you can do certain treatments um, in the somatic realm, right? Um, and uh, you can do now, the, of course, the reason they're researching this is because they want to find drugs, because drugs they can patent and then they can make money. You can't make a lot of money from, uh, you know, mushroom journeys, but uh, you can make money if you find drugs. So there's a lot of research done on that and you know, kind of essentially creating drugs that, that get that trauma and the epigenetic information shifted. But the tried and true ancient ways, interestingly, work very well. Um, so knowing that and knowing that you can, uh, you know, is, is kind of an interesting thing from a, let's say, scientific standpoint. As far as a procedural standpoint, uh, there's a few things to consider. Um, one of which is that you are absolutely right. There's some really interesting stuff that can happen when you um, alter your perception on something. Right? So for instance, you don't mind me saying that, right? Uh, when we talked yesterday with Nicola about her mother, she came out of the session and her mother had sent her a text, a very loving text, right? And then she came out of the evening session when her daughter said the very words that she had in her praise to her in the text. Well, why is that? Because of course, within we're all connected as humans, but particularly in a family line, the people who've given birth to you or the people who are related to you can feel you. There's all kinds of webs and connections that are not you know, scientifically apparent or medically apparent, but they're there. And so you can inform your line going backwards by your actions. 
um, or by the shift in your patterns. And uh, there's a thing we do on occasion called lineage and liberation, where we specifically work with liberating the lineage. So you can do it. And I think it's a worthwhile thing to um, work on. This often comes up in, in uh, you know, in, in context of like, let's say, nonlinear teacher training and stuff like that, where people go, I don't want to become more sensitive because we're sensitizing, right? And then the, that, that's a conversation that's often had. How sensitive is too sensitive? And how do you deal with being highly sensitive, right? And so there is many reasons why somebody could be sensitive, one of which is, of course, trauma. Another one uh, is overload, right? is meaning your system isn't capable of handling the input that is presented for whatever reason. That could be trauma, but it could also just be the way you're built. Right? We know that certain people that are now called neurodivergent, right? now everything has a nice label because that's, it also makes it so much easier to sell things to people. You know? <laughs> medications, uh, you know, books, whatever. Everything's got the label now. But when you really look at it, um, there's people who just, their nervous systems are built differently. It's not trauma. It's just they are not built like the next person you know, for whatever reason. There's a whole study that just came out that I just read a couple of weeks ago where um, they now can trace... Um, neurotransmitters in the mother, you know, like, so whatever happens in the mother's body while a child is being grown with certain behavior traits in the child. And they, they it was the, these groups, the dopamine, uh, you know, responses to serotonin responses and how that forms a baby's brain. And we've kind of known that, but, you know, you know, just by saying, oh, don't be stressed when you're pregnant or, you know, things or don't eat these things. They do stuff to your body. But now they were able to actually link that with certain brain developments. And there's specific times within uh, pregnancy where that brain development is very important, that that moment of the brain developing where more can go right or wrong. So there's now an assumption that there's a certain kind of influence on neurodivergence and sensitivity in those areas as well. So you don't know what it is. And um, it's, I think, neither a gift nor a curse in the context of learning how to manage it. The problem that's often happening when people are called highly sensitive, you know, highly sensitive person is that that gives them the permission to pack themselves in uh, cotton wool, so to speak. And then it gets worse because, of course, when you no longer have exposure to certain things, your world gets smaller and smaller. You experience more and more narrow. And then you're less likely or able to be actually going out into, let's say, an underground or, you know, driving, you know, going to work in the underground or so, because you're not capable of that. So while it's good to be sensitive, the sensitivity has to be um, worked with within the context of resilience. And so, of course, when we look at trauma therapy, um, we look at 
building resilience through a variety of factors that allow the person to actually face uh, the stimulus and not get thrown out or, or you know kind of popped out by it and there's a certain amount of l having to learn how to feel below the sensitivity which is essentially a, a kind of pulling away from the feeling into feeling and accepting and turning towards the unpleasant feeling. So I personally think that uh, pe uh, people who, uh, you know, kind of enable the highly sensitive person to have a narrower and narrower experience are really doing some harm mm -hmm. because what's left then? You stay home, right? It is considered that children are m much more highly sensitive not necessarily because they're more traumatized or because they're born as these special creatures but it has to do with the early exposure to electronics mm. right i was in the airport somewhere recently it's really shocking oh yeah in la at the airport i walked into the airport uh, you know toilet there and they have like a big changing table now really nice you know not like that you're leaning over some toilet, you know, some horrible situation. And there was a mother changing a baby. So the, not super, super small, but small enough to still need diapers. And she's changing the kid. And the kid was holding an iPhone, yeah. watching something, and like <laughs> swiping. Right? So we're talking, well, you know, under two, essentially. And that's considered one of the reasons why brains are not wiring the way they should be and where the, there's no physical activity and a lot of mental activity and the massive overexposure does something that allows the body to not cope. Mm -hmm. So there's all of that. We could say that's a trauma, but maybe that's just really bad you know, exposure or, or things like that. So I'd say not all hypersensitivity is trauma, but I think the first place you would look when you have somebody who is hypersensitive is areas of trauma. Yeah. yeah, That I think would be the first boxes to tick is are there physical traumas, emotional traumas, and so on and so on. I wouldn't want to say do this or do that, but there's lots and lots of research and literature on that. I'm happy to point you towards a few sources uh, where there's some real research on what happens in brain development when you park your child in front of a, you know, a TV for as a babysitter and things like that. Um, so there is there's real data out there and there's also lots of people trying to make a difference in that way. Um, and I think the universally accepted best practice is the less the better, particularly in those, you know, um, you know, really formative years. And then also where it can't be helped because it's in the schools, it's, you know, it's everywhere. Um, I heard the other day that they, um, they now estimate that only about 10 to 12 percent of all second graders know how to write by hand. And that's a, that, I mean, there you see how things can really go wrong. Yeah. Right? So there is lots of literature on that and you can read uh, all the things. But oh, what I was going to say is how you counteract it later is by lots of outside activity. Uh, it's now research that 
uh, children being able to go outside, have long view eye movement, so you know, looking further away, uh, seeing large vistas and things like that has a huge effect on brain development.